I don't know about anybody else, but my go-to is always tempted to be very shy and shriveled up and apologetic and feel like I'm in the way when somebody has asked me to be there. So I think that's something to look at and recognize, even if it's your first job, you know, they don't make a lot of mistakes with these things. There's too much on the line with time and money. They pick the person they want, and that's you. And at what point do you get to give that to yourself as a gift and go, yeah, I'm the person. They picked me. That is Michael Kostroff. I'm Lee Foster. You're listening to Action, the no-bullshit podcast dedicated to the pursuit of acting excellence. Michael is best known for playing the role of Maurice Levy on the hugely popular show The Wire. He has also had recurring or series regular roles on shows like The Deuce, Law & Order, The Good Wife, Luke Cage, The Blacklist, and the list goes on and on. Enjoy this episode. So, Michael, thanks so much for, for coming back and talking to me. I appreciate it. I always love talking to you. Same here. It's a pleasure. <laughs> you are coming back to Chicago. Yes. I can't wait. Tell me about that. Well, I, you know, I really love Chicago. I love the actors and the sort of the, 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 the craftsmanship of the actors in Chicago. So I, I kind of just I plotted out a whole weekend of, of insanity for myself because I missed it. And so I'm, I, <laughs> this, is my, this is my itinerary. I land. I do a guest on a podcast. I go teach my Audition Psych 101 class. Then I go to a public speaking, like there's an evening of comedy and storytelling that I go to. Oh, no, before that, sorry, before that, I have a book launch because my new book just came out, the book version of Audition Psych 101. And then for the next two days, I do my weekend intensive called Comedy for the Unfunny. And then, I, <laughs> then on the second night, I, I take a plane home. It's, it's the craziest, busiest weekend I've ever planned for myself. So it's, it's kind of nuts. Yeah. That's insane. You're not going to be able to see Chicago. I will not be able to say Chicago. I might be able to sleep or have a meal with a friend, but I'm leaving something out. It's just a blitz. It's just this nonstop blitz. But it's you know it's going to be a lot of fun. Obviously, I love I love teaching my classes. They both seem to help people so much, and and I've had a lot of requests to bring it back, so I'm bringing it back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, so tell me about this comedy for the unfunny workshop. When did that start and why did oh, okay. you start so, it? <laughs> this is sort of my new toy. You know, I do, I do a lot of audition coaching. I work with a lot of different kinds of actors on a lot of different kinds of projects. And I've started to encounter a good number of actors who feel like comedy is not accessible to them. And this is, a, you know, this is, you're one of those. You're pointing to yourself. Absolutely. I'm not funny and I am scared of it. <laughs> Well, that's what I hear from a lot of people. So this is an eternal question. Can funny be taught? And here's where I land on this. Some of us are instinctively funny. It's just like a it's, a, it's in the DNA. And when I work with people like that, we all, it's a shorthand. Like, we don't know why it's funnier for me to move the cup before the line, but we all know it's funnier. That's like comedy professor crazy shit. So, so you can't teach that. You can't teach that kind of instinct. But what I've developed follows the same approach as what dramatic actors do when they approach a dramatic piece. And people who've come to the class who don't feel particularly funny, they said, I, I didn't know you could break this down like this and talk about motivation, talk about obstacles, talk about objectives and stakes and, and the character's worldview. And I said, that's crucial. You have to do that. What I've discovered in teaching this is, first of all, the situation's rarely funny to the character. In fact, it's usually deadly serious to the character. You know, when, when Felix tells Oscar to get his feet off the coffee table, it's serious. The feet do not belong there. It's not funny. You know, I've played Max Bialystok now seven times, seven different productions. And 
Somebody once said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing Greek tragedy. I really am. This thing is so important to him. These stakes are so high. He'll, he'll do anything to get them. You know, he's thwarted. You know, it's all these dramatic things. Anyway, so I think what people are surprised is the extent to which they can tell the truth and commit to the stakes no matter how ridiculous they are. Anyway, it's, it's really fun. We're having such a stupid fun time with this class. I think also for people to have the experience of – Playing truthfully and having a whole classroom laugh is is very empowering. Yeah, you know, right. That's really interesting. I'm thinking about one of my favorite shows is Seinfeld. I mean, what, maybe yes. the greatest show of all time. And I'm thinking about the only times I love Seinfeld, and I wouldn't say a bad word about it. But sometimes you can see Jerry. You can see that he knows that what he's doing is ridiculous. Yes, and that bothers me a little bit. It's like he knows that. This isn't serious. But then with, with George, yes, he is so – I mean the stakes for him are so high Absolutely. all the time. Yes. Well, Jerry himself has said – he said, I was like an audience member on that show. I just, just sit and watch these crazy people doing stuff around me. He's like, I'm not an actor. I'm a stand-up. So you know, it's, what you're observing is something that he himself has said. But Jason Alexander in that role is a great example. It's, these, these things aren't funny. They're important. They're committed. They, you know, and, and for people who don't have a natural sort of comedy bag of tricks, this is a great approach to the thing. And it's a great way to take the sort of mystery out of out of the idea that, you know, can somebody play comedy? Anyway, this workshop, as you can tell, I'm kind of revved up on it because I could talk about it all day. <laughs> I'm looking forward to doing it in Chicago. It's going to be a lot of fun. Wow. Hit me with another tip. You want to hear? Don't give um, it all away, but hit me no, with one, hit me no, with one more. No, I, I like to give it all away. I think I'm particularly intrigued by the things that I learned from teaching this. And one of the things that's become really clear is the extent to which – you have to make a case for your own character. You can't be judgmental. You can't play comedy by saying, well, my character is overreacting. You have to really cut your character a complete break and say, okay, here's an example. We worked on a scene from Soap Dish in one of my classes where the Sally Fields character is upset because her boyfriend went back to his wife. Now, if she says, well, she's petty and she's shallow and she you know, has no respect for marriage, that's not the way to play that scene. The way to play that scene is, why does this happen to me? Don't I deserve love? I, you know, I, I've been wrong. How could he do that? And to really invest in your character's truth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It sounds a little mm -hmm. highfalutin, but, mm -hmm. but you, you don't get to judge that person. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when I play Max Bialystok, I don't think, well, you know, he's indulgent and, you know, and greedy. I think... I need it. I want it. I'm supposed to have it. Yeah. And that's how you play that. So that, that's been a – you got to really be on your own character's side completely, no judgment. And then it really frees you up to play the ridiculous. I once interviewed a guy for this podcast who teaches sitcom acting. One thing that he said that really stuck with me is that a lot of roles now on modern sitcoms star main characters who are completely witless. And it's true. But he said what's very important about playing those – those parts is that they don't know that they're witless. They cannot Correct. know that they're witless. And I think that kind of fits into what you were just saying. No, like if you're, you know, if you're playing a character who's stupid, it's just that people are around you are confusing. They're not being clear or right. they're not making sense. You right. know, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't play, you can't play. I'm stupid. Right. Right. So that, that's one of the fun things I've been discovering in this class. I mean, I could go on. I could go on. I will if you want. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be, be a nonstop blabbermouth on your podcast. But I, I love this topic. No, and comedy, yeah. you know, it's funny. You know, I'm mostly known for drama, which is hilarious to me because comedy's always been my thing. You know, I thought I was just going to be a musical theater song and dance man, and then I 
ended up being a lawyer on every you know every TV show you could see, <laughs> and usually a very dramatic, serious, you know, cutthroat lawyer. And my friends just laugh because they know that's not my thing, and that's ended up being my main bread and butter. Isn't that funny? That's amazing. What are you working on now? Let me think. The reason I'm pausing is answering the question of what I'm working on now. It's it, it's such a wide variety that I have to sort of you know line them up. I am on my way to do hairspray in Florida this winter. It's going to be my first time doing hairspray. Wow! Playing playing the mom, which is going to be fun. Wow! Yeah, I just got fitted for my fat suit with hips and boobs and everything. It's going to be really an interesting job. And I finally finished a book this summer. I have been wanting to complete the book version of my workshop audition psych 101 because a lot of people want to take it with them and i also get emails from people who live in places where i'm probably never going to visit with the class so it's finally out it's called audition psych 101 you should all check it out if for nothing else than the cover which i'm really proud <laughs> proud of i collaborated with a guy have you seen it i bought it i bought oh, it bought it's, it. it's yeah. in the mail it's in the mail yeah, I don't have my copy yet but my my wife already has hers it's not fair yeah the cover's really great i kind of love it and I'm excited again to, to be able to share that class with people, a wider a wider range of people, because it seems to have helped a lot of actors. Well, let's talk about that for a second before you move on. I'm curious, how is it to write a book? I mean, um, I can't imagine ever writing a book. I don't think I could sit still. I can't sit still for five minutes. Yeah. So I don't know how I could write a fucking book. <laughs> you know, writing's hard. I, I It's my second book. My first book was called Letters from Backstage, and it's a, a an account of my time on the road with the producers and Les Mis, and I, <sighs> books are hard. They're hard because I guess the analogy it, to me it's like it's like planning a, an ocean voyage. You can't see the other side, and even when you're in it, you can't look at the whole thing at once. There's no way to see it. It's too big, mm-hmm. and so it's very easy to get into this thing of like, like, wait, did I say that already, or is that repetitive? Have I used this word too many times? And you know, it's it's hard. It's hard, and, it's, and, and you know, every writer will tell you that procrastination is our is our nemesis. That's why it's taken me so many years to get this book done. I've been really nagged about it. Actually, the cover design was made was what made me go, all right, I got to finish this thing because the cover's too good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, it's hard. But you know, I think. I was really motivated by the fact that I wanted to get this class to other people who, as I said, might not live in big cities or might, you know, be out of the country. I've gotten, you know, requests from London and Australia and, you know, places that I I probably won't visit to teach it. So that's what kind of pushed me through the process. But boy, it's, you're right. It's daunting. It's daunting. So so are you working from home? Do you go to an office to, to write? No, I write at my house. I write at my apartment in New York. Do, yeah. you, do you write in the morning? Do you get up and say, I'm going to knock out this many pages or I'm going to work for this many hours? Or No, I don't think I have that kind of discipline with it at all. I just – my wife has a great expression about things she doesn't want to do. She says, I have to sort of approach them sideways. And that's how this is. I have to not think of it as a task and just keep going back. But I really do love words. I mean, I'm a word freak. That's I love finding the right way to communicate things, especially, you know, I'm translating a live class into the written word and trying to figure out how to make that make sense when you're reading it. And that, that it wasn't an unpleasant process. It's just getting past the procrastination and doing it. I, I, will, I will say this for any writers out there. For me, it comes out of my fingers. I will sit there and think, I don't know how to write anything. I'm not ready. I don't feel like it. If I will turn on the computer and open the page and put my fingers on the keyboards, they'll start to move. And I'll go, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. I want to say this. I want to say that. 
you know, it's a say I have, I told you I have this blog and, and I wrestle with it because now I have a weekly deadline that I set for myself and I'm like, ah, I don't have anything to say. And if I just crack the thing open and mm-hmm. start typing, it'll come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The hardest thing is to start. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There's a great line in the Neil Simon play where the guy says, I love being a writer. It's just the writing that's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So you were talking about what you're up to. But oh. we, we, we took a branch. Let's see. I'm teaching a lot. I'm, I just did an episode of Billions and an episode of Instinct, which is a new TV show. And this summer I directed a play, which I'm, I'm doing more and more directing, which I love. And then, of course, the inevitable weeks of unemployment and wondering if my career's over. Mm-hmm. That's, that's part, that's part sure. of every actor's plate. <laughs> I'm actually in the middle of two of the slowest months I've had this year. And maybe in years, and I'll say for myself that I'm actually, I'm actually not really worried. And Good. that's, that's an achievement because I have worked at that. I have fucking worked at not getting worried. I'm glad you said work because it's a discipline. You know, I, I, I fall prey to it. We, we all do. And nobody should ever judge themselves for it. I, I will say that now when a job ends, I think, my God, what's going to come up next? This is so exciting because things fall out of the sky. You know, you don't know what's going to, you you know, even though nothing's going on, you don't know that somebody isn't talking about you right now. However, I had six months without an on-camera job, which is a long time for me. I know that's not a long time for everybody, but for me, that's my usual bread and butter. And I, I went full depression. I'm never going to work again, just so you know, you know, because it's a long time. And throughout that six months, I had a lot of, oh, put a pin in him. Michael's one of the first choices. Could he get on a plane tomorrow was one of them. You know, it's looking really good, save the dates. And then, no, we went with somebody else. Uh. So, <laughs> it's a, I'm just saying I relate. I didn't mean to, to, to hijack your what you were talking about. But, yeah, it's a discipline to not get freaked out, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's something that you have to work on and it takes a long time. And when I talk to actors who are, like, just starting out and they get really excited about a – the prospect of something, I, t- I tell them, like, if you don't get it, you're going to get disappointed. And you're going to have to work on not getting disappointed. You will get disappointed. And the next one, you're going to get disappointed. And for years, you're going to get disappointed. But eventually, you're going to get better and better and better at not getting too excited for things that you don't have yet. And eventually, it will not become a problem. Because I think a lot of people give up before they get good at that skill. And they say the rejection is too hard. Yeah. And I think there's some reframing to be done also in terms of, as you know, one of the things that I teach in my class is you're not getting the fucking job. That's my, that's my mantra because it is far and away the most common outcome. And we get all fixated on something that almost never happens and we miss the journey. We miss the experience. We miss the chance to, to go in and play a role. And for me, when I go on an audition, I'm done. I've done an audition. I'm done. That's I punched the clock. I did what actors do, and I, I move on. It is not going to happen. I'd never think about it. And then I get to be pleasantly surprised if somebody actually hires me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it makes it feel – it never feels like rejection to me. It never feels like disappointment. It never feels like failure. It never feels like any of that stuff because I've recognized this is the norm. This is what we do. We go ply our little trade and people buy or they don't but mostly don't. Mm-hmm. And it's like being a door-to-door salesman. They mostly don't make the sale. We get ourselves really into a weird place when we place so much hope on each thing that's probably not going to happen. So I've become really content with – I love going around and auditioning because I feel like an actor that day, you know, 
I keep talking about this in my class. They, like maybe six months ago, maybe more, I had an audition for All My Sons, beautiful Arthur Miller play. And I didn't get cast, which is the norm. But I had such a good time. I would have gone to that audition even if I knew the role wasn't even available. It was so satisfying to do such great words with people watching and to do the character detective work. And, you know, that's what we love. That's what we're into. And I had a great time. Wouldn't take it back for, for any amount of money. Mm-hmm. You know? All right, Michael, I'm going to jump around. We got a bunch of totally unrelated questions with some I listener like questions. So let's just jump in here. So this is a question that I have been wondering about. This is a personal question. A lot of times we go to auditions and our character is supposed to be talking to more than one person. And there's one reader in the room. And I have asked a number of people. I've asked casting directors. I've asked other actors. And I say, the question is, are you supposed to put both characters that you're talking to into the body of the reader? So if it's like, if it's like I'm saying a line to character number one, and then number two, and then number one again, and then number two, am I supposed to just be looking at the the reader and saying all my lines to them, or do I put character number two somewhere in the room, and then character number one is the reader, and then boom, look up at number two, and then be- like you understand? I totally understand the question. So sit back. (laughs) I got a couple of answers for you. The problem with the question is the word supposed to, because we actors suffer under this tension of trying to figure out what's the accepted norm and what's what's expected. And the reality is that that's much less important to the people on the other side of the table than it is to you. And every casting director is going to be different. We should take a breath and recognize that no sane casting director has ever said, well, we were going to cast Lee, but then he put the characters in the wrong places for us at the, when, he was, when he was reading on tape. We get ourselves so tense about getting this right. And like, you know, I always think of Star Wars where he has to like drive through that narrow you know, passageway really fast. And we think of it like that. And, and that creates tension and anxiety and nerves that we don't need. So that's the first thing I want to say about that is there is no supposed to. And it's the same thing I say about memorization. I think the actor should think of these things in terms of what helps him, what helps you, what makes you feel the most comfortable and the most truthful in playing your scene. Make these decisions more selfishly. Like you should memorize, of course, because you'll feel better and you'll do better, but not because it's a test and you're nervous that they'll blow a line and they're going to judge you for it. It should be much more selfish. You follow? Now, now I'm going to answer the question in another way. I find that this varies depending on the scene for me. If looking away to the other person is helping me story-wise or helping me in terms of the rhythm of the scene, for example, I was playing something recently where I was sort of being interrogated by two people and I found that the looking back and forth contributed to my feeling of being on the spot, right? So I made that decision that way. There are other times that I just keep the keep all the characters with the reader. So there isn't a consistent answer in terms of my, as far as I'm concerned. I think this can be a lot more of a fun decision based on you looking at the material and going, hmm, what decision do I want to make as an artist? What, mm-hmm. what works for me? Mm-hmm. The people watching will not be confused. They know which characters are which. And you just have to decide if if the transition from person to person is going to help facilitate the clarity for you or the the truth of the scene for you. Okay. That's really good to hear because many times it does contribute to the clarity of the scene for me. And I've been told 
by a bunch of people. Nope, always use, always use the reader. Only the reader. I just think like, I don't fucking know how to do that. It's weird. I hate anything that starts with always. There is no always. You know, I was coaching somebody who had studied with a very popular teacher who has a lot of rules about how you position your body when you're on camera and your eyes. I'm like, if I'm doing all that, I'm not telling the truth of the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not doing the scene if I'm if I'm trying to choreograph things. So yeah, for for me, there's no always. I, I you know, this is what the problem that I have with these casting director workshops is that the casting directors will tell you always do this because in their office that's what they always want, and another casting director will tell you something completely different because in their office and they always assume that their tastes are universal and they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I think like I said. No one is going to say, don't ever come here again because you looked at the reader for all of the lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's never going to happen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's good to put things in those terms because we have these weird fears about, oh, I'm going to offend them. They're not going to like me. They're going to think I'm stupid. When really it's – these decisions are not crucial to anybody but you. Okay. Oh, that's that's very good to hear. You like that long-winded answer? I think it's great. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, Michael. Thank you for that. When was the last time you were surprised by something in this business? I forgot you were going to ask me that. That's all. <laughs> I can't remember who told me to ask that, but somebody told me to ask that. It's a great question. I think I'm probably surprised constantly. This is, I'm not saying this to sound humble. I'm truly surprised every time I'm hired because it's such a long shot. You know, I mean, getting hairspray was a surprise. I was up against guys who've done the part before. My summer of unemployment was a surprise. I don't know if I'm answering the question in a way that's satisfactory to the person who asked it, but I I think this career is almost nothing but surprise. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. I want to ask you about the best practices. And now I'm going to preface this based on one of your previous answers that maybe this is putting too much pressure on oneself. But in your experience, when you walk onto the set of a new project on the first day for the first time, what are the best practices that you've come across? Because many of our listeners have not been on the set of a, of a network TV show or a, maybe something bigger than a student film. Mm-hmm. Many of them have. I've been on the set of two TV shows where I had very small parts, and I felt like I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Do I just sit in my trailer? Is it cool to like walk around? Am I not supposed to go up to the main actors and introduce myself? Have at it. Right. There's a lot to unpack there. I think most actors, we're by nature insecure. We mostly think that we're faking it. We mostly think we're, we're not good and somebody made a mistake by hiring us. I think that's a, that, that is the plague of our tribe. So when we go on the set, I don't know about anybody else, but my go-to is always tempted to be very shy and shriveled up and apologetic and feel like I'm in the way when somebody has asked me to be there. So I think that's something to look at and recognize, even if it's your first job, you know, they don't make a lot of mistakes with these things. There's too much on the line with time and money. They they pick the person they want, and that's you. And at what point do you get to give that to yourself as a gift and go, yeah, I'm the person. They picked me. So to feel like you're you're an infiltrator somehow is something you should look at. Okay. In terms of protocol, I, I think the the first thing is to let somebody with a walkie-talkie know that you're there and who you are so that they will be able to find you, whether it's a PA or a, I shouldn't say anyone with a walkie-talkie. You'll, you will learn over time to identify the, who the PAs are and who the you know, second AD is and all of that. But you want to make sure that they know where you are because that's a, a big thing for them. I encourage you to own your space 
and to be a member of the cast for that day or days. In answer to your question about walking up to the leads, if you're going to be acting with a scene partner, you introduce yourself. Of course you do. I had to do this with De Niro recently, and that was scary as shit. I had to. We were about to shoot our scene, and I said to the first AD, I haven't met him yet. And I was I was nervous as fuck, but I had to do it. I had to go in there and go, hi, I'm, I'm Michael Kostroff. I'm doing it. He goes, uh-huh. And that was, you know, we were both really kind of weird and shy, but it, it was fine. You yeah, know? yeah. But that's, that's what you do with a scene partner, you know? And you got to remember that uh, this is vastly my experience, that these famous actors that you've seen on TV, when you get past that, they just want to do the work. They want to figure out the scene and figure out the blocking and connect with each other. And that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. What throws people off is when you come in all nervous and apologetic and because that's needy. It becomes something that they have to take care of. When you're just taking care of yourself and you're just you know, owning your own space, it's much more comfortable to be around. Mm-hmm. So at the risk of being overly verbose, I'm going to add one other thing. What I try to remember is when I work with somebody like, you know, De Niro or a big star, again, I've reframed this. I need to protect their bubble. When they go out in the world or they're on a talk show, or they, they've got to be on. They've got to deal with fans. They've got to deal with people being nervous around them. And I don't think that's a conducive atmosphere for them to work in. So again, I've helped myself by becoming somebody taking care of somebody as opposed to being asked to be taken care of, I'm protecting their at-work bubble where they just want to feel normal, like they're surrounded with colleagues and they're just working. Mm-hmm. That you know, It should feel like a factory, not you know, a red carpet. So whether I feel it or not, I've got to act like it's normal to be in a scene with Sally Field. You mm-hmm. know? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I feel like I talk a lot. Every, everything you say, Michael, is like a quote that I want to like write down and put into a book. That would be plagiarism, and I won't do it. I feel like people are listening and going, oh, shut up. But, you know, I, I get, you know listen, you know me. I get, really, I get really into this stuff because if it, if it helps to demystify things for actors, I get really excited because I was, as I've said many times, the most terrified, the most shy, the most inward and self-loathing and socially awkward young guy. Mm-hmm. And so I know what that's like. I, I, I want to help people not feel that way. Yeah. So I get it, you know? Well, let me just say that I, after 55 or more interviews, you're one of the, the best just in terms of your interview technique. And that's why I like to give you these weird questions and jump all over the place to try to trip oh, you up. I think I'm being punished for being a good guest. Good. Exactly. I like it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, on this same kind of topic, on the few projects that I have worked on that were like network TV shows, I wanted to say to the director, and I think sometimes I did, after a take, I want to say, is this what you're looking for? Or like, is this working? Is what I'm doing working? And I I have a feeling I know your answer, but I think that that is probably the inclination of a lot of people to go like, is that what you're, is this working for what you're what you're after. You know what I'm going to say, right? What do you think I'm going to say? You're going to say that that is asking them to take care of you for one, that yes. is not owning your space. They picked you based on your audition. And so you should be confident that what you're doing is working for them. And probably also that if it's not working for them, they'll tell you. See, I don't need to show up anymore. You can just do my answers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm here. You put it exactly right. I, I mean, you know, the only part of your answer that I disagree with is be confident because I don't think I can really be confident, but I have to behave com- confidently. Yeah. But again, the reason why 
is not so I don't embarrass myself. It's because I don't want to create more work on a set where there's already so much to do. And this is one of the differences between theater and film. You know, theater and, and on-camera work. In theater, I can have that discussion with a director. I can just say, I feel like it's not working, and we've got time to work it out and discuss it. One of the things that on-camera work makes you do is sort of just own your own badassness and go, I'm badass because they haven't said anything, and they don't say anything unless it's not working. Yeah. That's not always true. I mean, I have had directors go, really love that. You're doing great stuff. But let them say it if they need to say it. But And actually, there are some on-camera directors who are so much more technically inclined an actor inclined, they may not even know how to answer that. They might be, oh, yeah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But to introduce, again, to introduce a neediness in there that it's not therapy, it's not acting class, you are expected, just like any crew member, to know your gig, do your gig, and not ask for reinforcement. How about this? You are filming a scene on a TV show, and you have to say a phone number, and it's in the middle of a paragraph that you're saying and in the middle of a, a, a monologue and you go through it and everything is right. And then you finish it and they go, let's move on. And you go, Oh shit. I said that digit wrong. Oh yeah. I let them know. Okay. In case the script supervisor didn't catch it, I would pull them aside and, and say, Oh, I did that digit wrong. And they'll probably say, it's fine. We'll fix it in post. Don't worry about it. They'll have you come in and do ADR or, or something, Okay, you know, or, or else it doesn't matter very often, you know, and I think your listeners need to know this. If there's a paraphrase, they very often don't mind, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I mean, I had one thing where I went, Oh, wait a minute. I had my wedding ring on for this whole take and we were working without it. You know, that was a good catch on my part. They were yeah. grateful for that. Right. You know? Right. Wedding rings are funny. That's happened to me actually a number of times on like modeling shoots. I'll, I'll be in bed with somebody and it's for Sears and she's wearing a wedding ring and I'm not. And I'm like, yeah. uh, you want me to put a ring on my finger? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to remember to take mine off for certain things. Sure. Uh, you know. Yeah. Michael, do you think it's important to have multiple headshots? And the reason I'm asking this is because I, I talked to a casting director and she thought absolutely you have to have multiple headshots for TV and film. I agree. I agree. I think part of it depends on what you're particular market is if there's a wide range to it or not you don't want to dress up like a character like we used to have these composites where you'd play you know i had my nerd shot and my you know but particularly for example i you know i i do a lot of roles that are in suits and ties and very serious so i have to have a good strong dramatic lawyer shot but i also play goofballs you know and i i need a more relaxed more more casual photo so I think it helps casting people to be able to look at the photo and imagine you in the role. Mm-hmm. And whether this is fair or not, if you have a serious shot and they're casting a comedy, they're inclined to go, oh, no, he doesn't look funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are not the only two categories. I don't, want, I don't want to stop it there. But I think that there are women who can go more blue collar and more corporate upscale. You know, there are – I mean, not just women. There are people who can go both of those directions. And I think it's, it's valuable to have several shots. Okay, that is that's some homework that I need to get on real quick. Well, now you asked me how many I have. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I think I probably use I probably only use two or three at this point. But that's partially because people know me better. Mm-hmm. My agents don't knock themselves out to pull the right photo and click on it. But I think that you know you don't want to be the actor who's got twelve shots. That's too many. Sure. You know. Sure. Sure, but you also don't want to just have one. 
yeah, I think I think a good number is like probably four to six. Damn, really? Fuck. Yeah. What's wrong? What I have miss? had this one series. Okay, I got a because I was always told you want to have a commercial shot and you want to have a theatrical shot. That's what I was told for a lot of years, and that's all I've had until well, that's all I've ever had. And also, I didn't. I like the commercial shot, so I didn't really use the commercial shot very much, and I would just go, this one's better. And it was like me in a suit, you know? And I was using that for the my entire career. So I got to get on that. I got to get on And it makes so much sense, of course. Well, I mean, you, there's a range to what you play, right? I mean, what do you cast as the most? Boyfriend or like authority figure. Mm-hmm. So those are two very different things to me. Unless you're just, are you the, the asshole boyfriend? Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, so it's, that, that range is not quite as wide, but yeah, but, but there are other things you could be playing. Oh, I know. Damn it. You could be the friend who, who wants to get wild and party. That's not in your shots right now. Right. You could play that. Yeah. You know, I know. I know. I feel like I could do like doctor lawyer pretty decently. And I, I almost never get shots at those roles i never get auditions where i get to spout off like a bunch of jargon yep you know about a case Mm -hmm. and i would like to do those and i think i could do those really well you could do those and i'm I'm just looking at you and sort of casting i mean i think you you got that but i think you could also be the 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 slacker barista roommate guy and that's not in your shots at all right now not at all you know you could do that you could really open up your range it's time for some new shots some additional shots Okay. Homework. That's your homework. I'm writing it down right now. Yep. Good. Okay. All right. We're going to move on to uh, the listener questions. Good. Number one, how close is his relationship with his agent? What would make him seek another agent? I am one of the few actors I know. I'm crazy about my agent. I love my agent. We can get on the phone and talk about politics and waste time and talk about movies. And she's really tough. And she'll tell me, you know, when I want to go away and do a do death of a salesman in Peoria for a dollar fifty? She'll yell at me and say no. Not yell at me, but she'll like say, no fucking way. She's a tough New York Italian broad. I love her. So I think that's not necessarily a model of you should make sure that you have that relationship. I think I'm just lucky because I really, I really like her. She's great and she's smart. And what would make me seek another agent? If the person that I really have a relationship with were to leave, I would be likely to go with her. I think that. You know, this is a tough puzzle because there are frustrations in my career, like in anyone's career, and I think there are places I want to go that we're not going yet. And I, I don't know if at some pl- point I'll feel that I need a better agent, but I, I sort of don't anticipate that or want that because I love where I am, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let me talk in, a, in terms that might be more applicable to listeners. You know, I think we tend to be overly loyal and overly patient. When it comes to, you know, sometimes it's like any relationship. Sometimes the signs are there that I, I was just speaking last night to an actress who's been with a, an agency for a year and hasn't had a single co-star audition. And I said, that's too long. I think that's too long. And the agency is like, just stick with us. Just stick with us. I said, you don't have to babysit them. That's not your job. So I, I think that if auditions are not happening, then that's, you know, that's what agents are primarily for. So I think we have to also be realistic, you know, if we are in a a market that's tiny, like it's different if you're in Atlanta than if you're in LA, 
But I, I do think that we, if it's not working, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And I would always leave an agent that was abusive or you know, mean or didn't take my calls. You don't want to be with that person no matter who they are. Oh, this is a good one. This is going to be very interesting, I think, for me and other people. Okay. Does he get his friends' roles in projects he's cast in? Okay. I'm ready for an answer for this one. I do that every chance I get, and those chances are extremely rare. It's very, very rare that I feel like it's a comfortable place to do that. By the time I'm in something, first of all, there aren't roles available. Mm -hmm. You know? But I will always rec- – I mean, I, listen, I was directing a play this summer, and there was a role that was uh, open, and I, I just offered it straight out to a friend of mine. And that was great. It was joyous. But I'll tell you a little story, something that this is, again, a rare, rare current. I was working on the show called The Black Box, which came and went very quickly, and I was doing an episode of it directed by Eric Stoltz, who is not only a great director, but a lovely guy, really lovely. And we were sitting around between scenes, me and this other actor and Eric, and he said, so listen, we lost the actor who was playing this particular role do you guys know anyone? And I said to him, you know, nobody ever asks us. And, we, and I said, I know exactly the guy. And he's very similar in type to the guy you lost. And I mean, they auditioned him and my, my pal got a job and we got to work together, which was really fun. But that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, that's, that's a really rare, rare thing. So, so I don't get often the opportunity to recommend friends. Uh, well, sorry, I'm going to add one more thing because I talk a lot. I'm going to add, I would only do that with friends whose work I really admired mm-hmm. because I'm putting my reputation on the line. I would never do it just as a favor. That mm-hmm. never happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, another listener question. Outside of acting, I'd like to know, one, what's something he's most excited about right now? And two, what's missing from his life? As in, what's something he wants but doesn't have that would make him happier? These are serious questions. Yeah. Damn. Are we saying outside of acting in both cases? I believe so, yes. That's hard. Outside of acting, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm enjoying this blog that I'm writing, which is called The Weekly Curmudgeon, which I just write for fun. It has nothing to do with the industry or self-promotion or anything. It's just I complain every week about something. And I'm excited about that. What's missing? I mean, it's easy to talk about what's missing in my career. Well, I'd be happier if I was skinnier. I think that's the, that's the that's the truthful answer. I don't like my weight. You know, it's sort of a burden, and it's interesting. I've sometimes justified my weight because of my category as an actor, and now I think it's about I could lose twenty pounds and still be <laughs> still be the same same guy. So yeah, that's my that's my really honest answer to that. Well, I appreciate the honesty. This will flow right in because this one's about your career. Another listener question: What are his goals for his career right now? I just wonder when you're at his level. What does he want to do most? What's left for him to tackle? <laughs> it makes it sound like I'm, <laughs> like I'm like I've accomplished so much. I mean, you know, wherever you are, you always want something else. So the big one for me is I've never been, I've never appeared on Broadway. I had one Broadway job where I was an understudy off stage and never went on. So that was a milestone because I actually got to go through the stage door to go to work, and that was really cool. But it's a lifelong dream to have a, a New York theater career, and I still don't have one. So that's the big one. But, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. I'm looking for my, my next series regular role. I haven't done a lot of those, and I, I'd love to be on a series again and have a more prominent place in the series. And I want to do a lot more directing. I'm really loving the directing. I, I never knew that I would, and it's uh, it's a joy. So all that, everything. I want to do everything. That's the answer. <laughs>
All right, Michael. Well, we are coming up on an hour, and I just want to ask you one more question that I'm going to start to ask all my guests, I believe, which is, I would like you to give me and my listeners a piece of homework that is to be completed within the next seven to 10 days, because I think that it's very easy for actors to sit around and feel like they should be doing something. And if they're not in class and they're not working on a project, sometimes it's hard to figure out what to do. Something that'll make us just a little bit better actors, possibly. Okay. Decisions are hard for me because I have about, you know, a dozen things I could suggest. But I've pulled out this little tiny book that I love. It's tiny. Somebody gave it to me when I was touring with Les Mis. It's called Backwards and Forwards, and it's by David Ball. And it is, it's this little tiny book that gives us great things to remember. It's called a technical manual for reading plays. It gives us great things to remember when we approach a new script. It's so good. It's such a good little tool. I will, I'll just leave it at that. You should order it. You should get it. You should read it. And it will make you a better actor. I, I passionately believe in that. That's my recommendation. And I, I, I'm having to resist some others that I would throw in. But I, let's, just, let's just make it an accomplishable goal. Get Backwards and Forwards by David Ball. Okay. You can give us the other homework next time you come on. Okay. All right, Michael. Well, let's end it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Anything else that you want to add? Well, I, I've got this great Chicago weekend coming up, and I don't get there often. So I want to make sure that everybody in Chicago goes to my website, which is auditionpsych101.com. And I know you'll put this up there. And check out Audition Psych 101 and Comedy for the Unfunny, which is my, my comedy workshop, and sign up. Because it's, it, like I said, I, I just don't get there very often, and I want everyone to be able to come if they can. It's going to be the first weekend in December. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And it was a pl- I have to say it was a pleasure. I love talking to you, and, and thanks for having me on. To find out more about Michael and to sign up for one of his workshops, go to auditionpsych101.com. If you think you have questions you'd like to ask any future guests, go to Facebook and join the group Action, the Pursuit of Acting Excellence. I'm Lee Foster. Thank you for listening.